Dan, thanks for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Dan Shan. Dan, thanks for coming on. Hey, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Sounds like it's going to be fun. It is. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, well, you know, originally, um, you know, I kind of started in the, when you think of betting, the way I started out is my grandfather used to take me to the dog track and, you know, play quinillas, trifectas, you name it. And then, you know, as I got older, I, I actually got into the forensic valuing business. Uh, I valued different kinds of items. Uh, I even did a Ferris wheel. So I was basically an expert witness in court, and I did that for uh, nine years, ten years. So I just valued different things for, you know, for divorce cases and things like that. So back at the, the track in those days, did you always have a, a close affinity for for betting, for the gambling part of it, the risk, or was it the numbers that you liked, or was it looking into the details and the data and then trying to figure out, you know, whether or not the the horse, the dog, or whatever animal it was, was going to win the the race? Well, I mean, I think it, it was a, a combination of being, you know, loving the gambling, the, you know, beating the number kind of thing. But I think at the other side, too, was, you know, I kind of got a little analytical, maybe in a real basic, you know, younger sense but i was you know i was analyzing you know their top three finishes the changes in grade and you know so so eh, let's call it a little analytical mainly just having a good time yeah fair enough so uh evaluator that's an interesting job i'm guessing you you mentioned ferris wheel there's probably a a myriad of different things that you're looking into and trying to value i know that has some overlap with the gambling world but was that something that you get trained to do and you figure it out or is there some touch and feel i guess is it qualitative more than quantitative or is there a combination there it's you know well originally what i started out as is i was kind of uh you know collecting sports memorabilia and i had a a neighbor and he was getting divorced and he kind of got into the sports stuff too well when he was getting divorced his wife was saying this stuff was worth a zillion dollars and uh i kind of uh he kind of used me as a witness I kind of caught on with his attorney. His attorney was like, man, you could do this. And he kind of just got me straight from, you know, the insurance world and real estate world that I was in and kind of just said, this is what you should do. You, you got a real good way with, you know, the jury. You you did great. Um, you should get into this. And I kind of just started from there. So tell me how things got started for you, specifically in the betting world, because obviously there's a, a number of different ways and approaches, whether it is, you know, the gambling side and, and many others. Was it something you looked at and and knew straight away exactly what you wanted to do, or did it take some time to feel your way around the best area for you to hit first? Oh, no, no, no. I started like everyone else. I knew the Broncos were a better team because they played better the week before. I I did all the amateur stuff that you can do from the beginning. Um, And then I kind of clued in on the, you know, the line value and the, you know, the predictive, you know, analysis and, 
how to come up with, you know, what is a fair line or a fair number for a game compared to knowing who's going to win. How long did it take to transform yourself from a basic, you know, gambler to more advanced? And did that, you know, evolve over a number of years or, or what was your approach to trying to switch over from just the average gambler? Well, what I did is I took the, the, the real estate background and the valuation background and I kind of formed that together to start creating a, what I call comparable analysis. So what I do is I do a comparative analysis of team A to team B. And from that, I come up with a, a good number or a fair number that tells me what the value is in that game. And that was a short process. It didn't take long at all. I kind of uh, stuck with it, was hard on it, and kind of just went from there. So, in other words, power rankings, right? Yeah, power rankings, but in a sense more like um, instead of me going and creating, you know, a Monte Carlo sim or some kind of simulation to come up with, you know, a thousand rolls of the dice or whatever you want to call it to try to come up with some probabilities. What I did is I went the other way. I said, look, the probabilities are already here. When you look at the lines and the odds and the past lines and odds, you already have a power ranking. You know, the Yankees are a base rate of minus 140, you know, using U.S. lines. And the Dodgers are a minus 160. Okay, so the Dodgers are 20 cents better than the Yankees. So now let's adjust. And the real key is the adjustments. A lot of people are still stuck on models and adjustments is where 90% of the money's made. So how would you describe what the market is for how you, I guess, essentially operate yourself? Uh, you know, whether it's a, a spread, a total money line, whatever it might be. How does that number translate into your mind or into your approach? Because you talked a little bit about it there, but can you just extrapolate on why it's so important? What aspects of it you need and enjoy and helps you with your process and even some some of the gaps that come with you know obviously the market not always being perfectly efficient let's say well yeah i mean that's kind of the, that's kind of the trick of the whole thing you know the, the we all know the market's efficient we all know that the market is efficient we know that but at the same time we know that the market isn't perfectly efficient or isn't efficient on every game so when you're thinking of like okay do i bet on this game well, obviously, I shouldn't bet on this game if the market's efficient, right? Because then I'm just paying the juice. Right. So you, you have to identify where those value points are. But you have to believe that there's value points, right? Because mm -hmm. if you believe the market's efficient, you shouldn't be betting. Correct. Yeah, you're wasting your time. So if you're using the market efficiency as the base of your model, you kind of got yourself stuck, right? I mean, it's like a catch 22. If you're using the market efficiency and the data from the games to generate a fair number, but at the same time, you believe that the market is already efficient, you're kind of stuck. So what, what, what kind of hit me was, okay, well, I can, I can generate what a fair line is, but how can I generate something that's going to have market value, that's going to have value. And that to me is where the adjustments come in. The adjustments, when I talk adjustments, I'm talking about weather, injuries, rest, you know, those type of things, things that are real and are, that you can quantify. So let's talk about what the market might lack. And it obviously might vary depending on the time of day or week we're talking about. Let's say NFL Sunday games, if we're talking about, you know, Monday or Tuesday as opposed to, to Sunday morning, we're talking about different things. But are there things, you know, obviously free market information and the 
the lines as they are is, is incredibly important and valuable. But are there things that are missing within that that you need to think through? Because it strikes me that it's not always easy to fully understand what's captured within that market price and what's not. And going through that process might be challenging. Yeah, the, the, the thing for me is that I want to trust the market, but I also want to trust the market's adjustments. So if, if let's say we're going to use the last 10 games or the last 10 lines of the Yankees, we take the last 10, well, let's do NFL. Let's take the NFL. Let's say we're going to take the Raiders last 10 games and we're going to use that, that data from the lines to come up with a total and a spread. So now we take that information and we put it together. And now what we have to do is we have to go back to each one of those individual 10 games that we're analyzing and make adjustments. We're not just adjusting for this game. We're adjusting those lines based on what happened in those previous 10 games. So game three, the quarterback was out. So the line was, was minus six. It should have been maybe minus nine. So we have to know the value of the quarterback. And then now that we have good data, 10 good games and good data. And when I mean good data, I mean way better data than a Monte Carlo sim or something like that, because we don't have only the model that I created. We basically have the compilation of all the people's mark, all the people's models together, which form that efficient line. So take me through the next step in your process. Then once you've been able to do all that, uh, take us take us through for an NFL Sunday game, let's say, how your adjustment process works. What things are you thinking about? How do you tweak uh, your numbers based on what you've initially calculated? Well, you know, like, okay, so let's say I do a raw number of Raiders minus six. If the Raiders are minus six as a raw number means I used good data, I got to minus six. Now I'm going to look at what kind of rest are they on? Did they play on Thursday last week? Did they play Monday night? Is this an early game? Um, how much travel is in there? You know, how far did they travel? What time zone differences? All these little things are going to make a little tiny bit of adjustment to that. And then I'm going to create what I call a fair line. But the key to me creating a fair line is I don't cheat. I don't look at this week's lines at all. I completely avoid them. When I create a fair line, my fair line is made by me and it doesn't have any anchor bias in it. So when I pull up the computer to actually think about betting, when the limits have went up high enough for me to think about betting, I have a fair number already. And that's my number. And if I'm not close on 13 out of 16 games, something's wrong with my model. But the three games that I'm off on, those are the ones now that we're going to dig a little deeper and we're going to find out, okay, did we miss something? If I got minus seven and the book has minus nine and limits are already up, what, what, what's the difference? Why is there a hole there? And if I can't really find something that's making that hole, then I bet it. How does that go when you do have those major discrepancies? Have you got any numbers or even just general thoughts on, on the, the win-loss or the ROI when it comes to those, those types of games? I have over 20,000 recorded bets. My expected ROI is around 25 2.8%. My actual ROI is around 3%. Okay, so that works. Do you think that's scalable across every NFL fan, let's say, if they spent a handful of years going through and adapting their process to be similar to that and similar to yours? Do you think they could get to that point or do you think it's it's limited to a certain type of individual who has a certain skill set? I think it's wide open to anyone and I think anyone can do it. The problem is, is who wants to do 14 hours a day of spreadsheets? Yeah, certainly not everyone. Certainly not everyone. Yeah, you know, that's the real problem. I meet a lot of people that come and talk to me and they're like, hey, man, you know, I want to learn how to do this. Okay, 
I'll teach you. I'll show you. I'll, I'll give you some pointers. I'll work with you. And usually a month later, they're back to betting on the big favorite. Yeah, no, I, I concur because I think there's plenty of things in the gambling game that are, you know, not solvable, but you can get to decent solutions, whether it's things like line shopping, whether it's not betting when you're drinking or when you're upset or you're on tilt and, and, and you know, so on and so forth. There's plenty of those things. And if you did all of those well, um, you could curb a lot of that house advantage. But I guess one of the questions that pops up is how do you know what's factored into the price? How do you know what's not yet factored into the price? How do you know uh, whether it's factored in but it has no value and so on? There's there's obviously a lot of possibilities when it comes to trying to reverse engineer and figure out what the market is looking at and accepting versus what it hasn't thought about. Yeah, you know, uh, in my honest opinion, I think the market has thought about 99.99% of stuff. So I really don't think there's a lot of space in there, you know, in most situations. I think that most lines that are a little bit wrong or a little bit off, it's usually because of maybe bad money or maybe uh, one of the major books needs a spot on something. I don't think it really plays into, you know, that I'm modeling better or I'm doing something better than the market is. So is it often information that you think will find its way into the market, but it may not necessarily have it yet, like weather or something like that, or an injury that, you know, clearly it's not being tweeted about, it's not in the, you know, newspapers or websites yet, and therefore you think you're first? Or is it, are there things truly that you think you're factoring in that others haven't thought about or they have, but they've overlooked it? I think what I'm doing is I'm picking fruit before it's ripe. I think a line... The goal for me is for the line to get right. So if I have plus nine and I bet at plus nine, I'm thinking that the line's going to close at plus seven. So if I bet at plus nine, the line needs to move to close to points two plus seven. If it doesn't, then there's something wrong with my model and I have to go back and try again. How do you think about things like trends? Because it's proliferating pretty widely and a lot of people obviously just ignore them. Do you have to think about them because it may be having an impact on the price? Or do you think that the market is smart enough to figure out that, you know, Tom Brady off a loss is 6-0 and or whatever, even though one of those games or three of those games were 11 years ago in a completely different uh, team and, and environment? Is that something you have to think through at all or do you just completely throw it away? Um, no, I, I, I don't believe in anything. I don't have anything to do with trends. I laugh at trends. Um, I see, you know, I see people, you know, I mean, let's just a, a simple trend that everyone bets every day. When DeGrom's on the mound for the Mets, you know, everyone and their mother's betting the under, right? I mean, that's just, that's a given. Mm -hmm. yep. Everybody's betting the under. The under could be six, six and a half, seven, eight, nine, who cares? They're betting the under. So is it possible that the books already adjusted for that? Probably. But does that mean that there's situations where there might be a little bit of room in there for something to play with because the line is going to get efficient. The line doesn't start efficient. The line gets efficient. So the idea is to try to grab it where it's not efficient yet. We still believe that the line is efficient. We're just trying to grab it where it's not efficient yet. Yeah. Cause I, I'm, I'm not entirely certain on whether these ridiculous trends or ridiculous for, for guys like yourself and professional gamblers out there who obviously ignore them, but is there any way that they somehow have an impact? And whether it's a Sunday night NFL game or, or so on, um, I don't know. Even the DeGrom example, I wonder if if at all ever there is any chance that they become relevant or, or irrelevant. 
my personal opinion is I think they if the, my personal opinion is this. If they mean anything, they're probably in the line. Okay, that's step one. So they're probably in the line already anyway. But most of that stuff really doesn't mean anything. I mean, books go by power rankings and betters model. They're not looking at how they did their last three games against a, a team on a, a windy afternoon. That's not in the model. I mean, and if somebody's putting that in a model, please show me. I'd love to see what the adjustment <laughs> is. Yeah, I totally agree. So tell me what, I mean, basic question, but what's the model, what's the intention of your model? Is it to beat the closing line? Is it to, you know, just be a tool to help you win longer term and it's irrelevant to other things like that? Or how do you think about what you're putting together on the uh, quantitative side? Well, well, the, the most important thing to me is clip detection. Let's say, let's say me and you get together, we spend 10 years in a closet and we build this amazing model that's perfect, right? Yeah. We have this perfect model. This thing is phenomenal. We're crushing the line. We're making money. How long is that model going to be good? Because the idea is if the book sees it, they're going to adjust. If the book finds the niche that we're in and where we're working, they're going to adjust. What me and you have to do is we have to have some sort of cliff detector to know when we're gonna fall off that cliff. And so what my model does is it says, okay, look, you can find deficiencies here, you can find inefficient stuff here, but we need to know when, more importantly, when that inefficiency is gone. So that's why I always tell people that are successful, you're probably just holding the money for the book. You're just get, teaching the book to get smarter and eventually they're gonna take all that money back unless you know when to stop or when to change. And that's why you need a cliff detection system. You have to know where the cliff is. So describe that for someone who does build that great model. What would you advise them to do when it comes to, as you describe it, cliff detection? Well, I mean, the thing is, is you gotta use your closeness to the closing line. When you sit down and you, you sit down and take your pencil out and, and you start scratching all over the place and you come up with this amazing number of uh, let's say you come up with uh, Broncos minus seven this weekend, right? So you have the Broncos minus seven. Now you're going to go look at the book's closing number on that game and say it closes, it needs to close really, 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 really close to your seven. And it needs to be that way on nearly every game you did. That kind of tells you that you're getting real close to the implied probabilities of those games. So now if you're seeing stuff early in the week that's different than what you modeled, you can bet it because you darn well know it's going to go back to where the efficient number is. And you can use that on the short term. You don't need thousands of results to do that. You can model, I can model next week's, you know, the Sunday games coming up next week. If I'm way off on a bunch of those games, I did something wrong. It doesn't take me putting thousands of dollars back in the book, bookmaker's pocket to know that I'm off. What happens if you're way off, but you're winning? How do you treat those examples? I call that good luck. <laughs> I call that the variance monsters, you know, not mad at me. You know, the variance monster is the biggest thing. You know, I, I told, I think we talked about it and I'm not sure if it was me and you exactly, but you know, it, it's variance is the cruelest thing on earth. 
you know, variance tells losers that they're winners. Variance tells winners that they are losers. You know, he lies to you all the time and never stops lying. And and that's the thing with, you know, that with variance, that's why you have to have this clip detector, as I call it, which is kind of weird. People don't really get it, but you have to have this clip detector because variance is going to lie to you. So if you if you make your number minus seven, by way of an example, and the market opens at minus three, pretty soft numbers, you know, a week out, and then it climbs all the way up to, let's just say, five and a half or closes at six right at the death, you would prefer that your number was... Sorry, that's example A. Example B is it opens six, it slowly gets to six and a half, and then ends up closing seven. You'd rather the second example because it's more in line with your implied probabilities on that game, uh, even though you might win more by laying three all the way up to laying six in the first example? Yeah, uh, my goal and only goal is to be as close, is to know as early as possible what the closing line is going to be very close to. Because as you know, that's a simple formula. You're going to find those threes to sixes. You're going to find that stuff a lot better when you know what the closing numbers. I mean, think of it as, think of gold. Say you could predict what the price of gold is going to be at the end of tomorrow, close. I mean, what kind of money can you make knowing that? Yeah, right. So back back to cliff detection. How how easy is it to implement? Well, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. The the, the first thing you have to do is you got to stop thinking about winning and losing. Winners and losers are irrelevant. They mean nothing. I don't even check my win loss record. I really don't. I know it sounds crazy, but I really don't pay attention to it. You gotta you gotta make sure you're not providing some anchor bias. You got to make sure that you're not looking at numbers or looking at data to to influence your decision on what number you're coming up with. And you got to create those numbers, adjust them for when adjustments happen, injuries, weather changes, things like that. And you got to compare them to the actual closing numbers from, you know, we're talking major U.S. sports. I kind of like Pinnacle. I kind of like Bookmaker. I probably blend them a little bit to give myself an accurate closing number. Um, when you're talking, you know, soccer, I only use Pinnacle. When you're talking esports, I only use Pinnacle. As I'm talking about for the closing number. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so when you you have to make sure that you're getting very close to those closing numbers. If you're not, your model's no good. And it doesn't matter whether you're winning or even getting line value. You know, say you're getting a, a ton of CLV with this method, but your closing numbers are not even close. I wouldn't trust that. I would think that's the variance monster trying to get me again. Right. If I make the Chiefs two touchdown favorites for every single game for the entire season and I happen to win because they go 10 and 6 ATS, even though my numbers are not even close, it's just pointless pie in the sky stuff. Absolutely. It's just a variance monster, you know, lying to you. He's a tricky dude. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So tell me more about anchor bias and how people might uh, rely on it in the ways they shouldn't. Well, I mean, I mean, it's kind of easy, right? You you call your buddy up on the phone and say, "Hey, do you like the Chiefs this weekend?" And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to open up, you know, Pinnacle, and he's going to look at the Chiefs and see they're, you know, minus four hundred and minus nine. That's going to tell him right there the Chiefs are going to win, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's that's the big trick. Now, can your buddy tell you what the closing line's going to be on the Chiefs? I mean, there's just two completely different levels of skill there, in my opinion. So how do you, let's say you're sitting down at a uh, coffee shop in a couple of years time, obviously not during COVID, of course, but, and you're talking to someone whose approach is almost only just modeling games and, and doing it in that way. 
how do you how do you have a discussion with that person about how to convince them that this approach might be better than them who are who are doing the typical modeling exercises? Well, I would say to someone that's modeling, uh, let's flip a coin and you pay me you pay me ten and I'll pay you nine when you win. You pay me ten when I win because that's what you're doing. If you're modeling using you know Monte Carlos or all the other you know different models that are out there right now that people are doing you're basically doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. So, so how are you going to have an edge when you got to pay a dime or eight cents in juice? Right? I mean, there's, there's no way to really win there. And the biggest kicker of all kickers is when do you know that your, your model's no good anymore? Even if it's great today, how do you know that it's good a week from now or two weeks or a month? How do you know that the book didn't hire the smartest design the best algorithm for the, you know, the market or the niche that you're working in. And now your edge is gone and you're sitting here at home, you know, pulling your hair out and you don't even know what happened. So it, it's, it seems like we have this cliff detector problem that you got to get that right. You either got to be early or spot on because if you're late, then you're just handing back the money that you've made throughout the, the good parts of your model. And then you've got to keep reinventing yourself, let's say, or adapting to the the sport or the markets you're working within because obviously as we know those edges aren't going to last forever and you've got to be good enough to keep originating or keep modeling and, and making those good decisions uh time after time correct and also that's another thing that i'm going to tell this modeler that we're, we're talking to my method is in a way a little recession proof because i'm using the current i'm using the current lines I'm not using, I'm not using, I'm using the current lines. So the modern and the, and the newest approach that people are using to come up with a closing line should be in the last 10 games lines where your model might be the same model that people were using or the, the method might be the same as people were using 50, 50 lines ago, a hundred games ago. So you're, you're a little more recession proof with the comparative analysis than you are with an actual good old fashioned strict model. Interesting. So obviously there are public models out there, Sagarin, Ken Palm, you know, Massey Peabody, all these different places you can go and usually get free information. Uh, is that a better starting point than trying to figure out a whiz-bang model of your own, do you think? That's the only place you should be. They model good enough that you don't, need, you don't even need them. You can literally just use the, the morning lines from the 10-day early lines from books to give you a probability. That's going to be dang near or better than any model that you're going to create. You can use Sagarin or, you know, uh, like you said, you know, use Massey, use any of those and come up with a, a, a really good line. But the, the idea is, I mean, let's talk about, you know, Poker Joe. This guy is one of the smartest guys in the business because he knows how to adjust. He knows that the Jets are four points better than the Broncos on paper. But when it comes to... Darnold isn't playing and the Broncos traveled all the way from the West Coast and the Broncos played three days ago. He is one of the best at adjusting to a good number and coming up with a fair number with those adjustments. And it's not the model that he does that's great. It's the adjustments that are great. The model business is dead. The adjustments business is huge. So pre all these different tools and approaches to modeling, was everyone just doing the adjustment business then? Or what was the, in your mind anyway, back 25, 30, even 40 years ago when it was, 
lack of information, lack of tools, lack of technology compared to what we know today, was that what everyone was doing back then and you just had to be better at it than everyone else? Or how do you see the evolution of following the market number as a baseline and then from there making your own adjustments based on superior knowledge and skill set of qualitative adjustments, let's say? Well, I mean, when you when you're talking about betters from so long ago that didn't even have computers, I mean, God, I can't even imagine. You know, they were sitting with a notepad, and kind of tracking, <laughs> kind of tracking. You know, first downs themselves probably. I mean, that that probably really separated the talented from the not talented. Um, but when you when you're talking, you know, in recent history, models are great. Books know that. They probably deal with, give deals to and use the best modelers out there. They know that models can be, you know, the average Joe. But the reality is, is that modelers are up against modelers. The bookmakers, a third party, right? Yep. So if you're modeling and I'm modeling and I get a dime because I'm the bookmaker taking a commission, you're both going to lose a nickel. So someone who's listening to this who has a similar approach to you, let's say, or they're in the earlier stages of using the market number and then providing their own adjustments to that, how would you guide them through the, the challenges when it comes to the small sample size as well as if you do go long enough, survivorship bias comes into play? And I would imagine there is a, a way to try and understand if, if you're good enough to do these adjustments yourself, but it, it must be so hard to do that subjectively um, or do it on yourself I should say without having you know the ability to be objective and, and have someone else let's say from a bird's eye view do that for you you know it comes back to the cliff detection if you're if your model if your model and when I say model I'm talking about adjustment model if your adjustment model tells you that LeBron's worth five against the rockets on the road and all the power rankings show them being favored by 10, and and Le, and LeBron's out or something, so now you're at you know the line should be at five. You're you know, and you're coming up with seven. You're not in the right. You, you're wrong. Your model's wrong. You know, did that make sense or did I get weird? No, no, that makes sense. It makes sense. And I think you know, moving across to I wanted to ask you a bit more in detail about closing line because. I don't know that that's perfect either. And it strikes me that especially when you're starting out, if you have a good approach, a winning approach that's working and works and maybe backward looking, we can, we can know that in advance, but closing line, is it, especially when the lines are moving, it seems like there's a certain segment of the market that can move lines and that certain segment of the market are not brand new betters, let's say, or, or people with a winning approach that are doing well it's going to be those that have the respect of the bookmakers have the respect of the market and therefore it's only a certain segment of the market that is well entrenched let's say so no one can ever move the line or or impact what the closing line is unless they're working their way to that segment which again may be fair enough but also it it just shines a light on maybe some challenges that come with closing line yeah i mean you think of closing line value you got to think Okay, betters who bet heavy and got a little bit of respect from the book, they can't use CLV because they're moving the line. You know, you, you, you can't use CLV as a gauge when you're the one that's moving the line. And then when you look at betters that are new and say they're super talented, 
They have no respect from the book, so they're not going to move the line, so they can't use CLV. And then when you go to your $20 bettors, the book doesn't even care about their $20 bets, so they're not moving the line. So CLV for a better to use as a tool is kind of difficult to find a spot that you can use it in. I mean, it's a pretty unique better that can actually use CLV to, you know, have this expected return. So does it become less valuable then as the better you get? Or let's say you're a top end, uh, let's say top end baseball gambler and you've done really well for a long period of time. You continue to do really well. Anything you bet's going to move in your favor. Therefore, your your closing line value is going to be pretty good all the time, I would imagine. But that's not necessarily, you know, the ROI expected from closing line versus actual ROI is going to be or potentially be pretty divergent. Yeah, you're gonna have. I mean, that's what I, you know. That's kind of what I was just saying. Is those, those people? I mean, you can't use closing line value if you're creating the line. You know, if you're impacting the line, and I mean significantly impacting it. You know, guys that are betting ten grand a pop. You know, maybe hitting it three or four times. They're gonna move a line twenty, thirty, forty cents. So they obviously can't use closing line value. So CLV is really interesting and it's great for someone that's starting that's just starting to climb the ladder that maybe is starting to feel like they're getting a little bit uh, moving up a little bit but it really doesn't work for pretty much 90 percent of the betting world clb is is more luck than it is anything else for 90 percent of the betting world that small little sliver percentage of people that are kind of on the growing up ladder that haven't got the respect yet that the book doesn't notice yet that the book's not moving on their bet amounts aren't high enough those guys can probably use CLV and get real close expected to actual ROI. But you've got millions of breathing cases of people that, you know, there's guys out there that win long-term and they're not, you know, survivorship biased. They're not, um, you know, this variance king. They're not. They're, they're good at what they do and they're skilled and they don't even pay attention to their line value. So that's always going to have that, you know, that kick in the side of CLV as the save all. I think it's, a perfect time to mention that it just shows that there are plenty of approaches. There are plenty of ways to, to skin the cat, let's say, when it comes to this. Any absolutes are, you know, obviously incorrect, let's say. And it's, I guess, question for you around that. How, what's the best way to go about this, talking about it, thinking about it from a theoretical point of view into the actual practical nature of it? Because that's always part of the challenge when it comes to, to research when it comes to models, you know, back testing is all great and fine. And then you come to the actual game day of, of betting or the season or whatever it might be. It's not always that simple. Do you feel like there's a built-in barrier when it comes to relying on the market first and then having your own adjustments? Or do you think there's still many challenges that come with those adjustments and, and trying to get those correct throughout the, you know, the extent of a season, let's say? Well, I mean, the, the, the more experience you have with the adjustments, the better you're going to get at it. Right. I mean, you're going to learn that you're going to learn that LeBron's worth six points when they play a good team, and LeBron's worth only three or four points when they play a bad team. Those are things that you get with experience, right? Your adjustments are going to be better in just experience alone. Maybe not, you know, you're not really adjusting, you know, on a piece of paper or changing a formula, but you understand that in different situations and different things, the value of these players changes slightly, or the value of weather changes slightly. You know, like take a team in the NFL that's a heavy run team. If they run the ball, say, 60%, 70% of the time, does it really matter if it's raining or snowing out compared to a team that throws the ball 60 or 70% of the time? And those are the things that you think 
not those specifically, but those types of elements that may not be captured and you can take advantage of? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly how Poker Joe makes a living. I think that's how this guy, you know, I think this is the kind of stuff that he is able to find in the market and exploit, and he could care less about CLV. Now, everybody that knows me knows that I love CLV, and I scream CLV from the top of the roof, but he could, he really doesn't care about CLV because he knows his adjustments are better than the market. The real thing is, you know, like, take, take Joe B. You know, he wrote that book about the black cat and the coal cellar. You know, he's got all kinds of formulas for you to figure out if someone's skilled or not skilled. You know, he's got Z formulas and P, D, F, all these different formulas to try to analyze a better or to try to analyze someone that you're taking, you know, following their bets. And those things are great and they work perfect. But the only way for me to know that someone is a skilled better is for them to come to me and tell me, hey, the Broncos are minus four right now. I think that's a good bet because they'll probably close close to seven. Now, if they can do that on a regular basis and it, it's reality and it comes to fruit, that to me is a skilled better. And I don't need to see CLV. I don't need to see expected ROI. If you tell me the Broncos are at four right now and they're probably going to close at seven and you're pretty much doing that on a regular basis, you're a skilled better and you're probably going to make money. Isn't that CLV though? It's CLV. But it's CLV, but I'm more talking in the line of trying to analyze whether someone's skilled or not. Got it. Okay. Now, now, when you're talking – now, is that CLV? Of course. You know, minus four, they bought it at minus 110. If the line moves to seven, minus four is probably what, minus 190 or something? I mean, there's a huge line value in there, of course. And, and that should be the goal of everyone. If you're betting at minus four and, and it closes minus five – you're doing good things. If you're betting at minus four and it closes at three and a half to four, you're, you're flipping coins. Yeah. Tell me, t- tell me how hard it is to, so like losing runs, everyone goes through it. It's the way of life. Is it, I'm not sure this is true, but is it more difficult to do that when you're relying on subjective analysis and qualitative analysis on the sporting event or the match, for example, uh, does that make it harder to, Stomach because you can, I guess you can partly uh, put the blame onto yourself for making a bad, bad call on adjustment or over, over factoring certain things and so on. Well, to me, it doesn't really matter because I only care. My score is done when the closing line comes out. So for me to win and lose, it's based on how close I am to the closing line. Now, now, is that going to pay the bills? We know it's not. The final score of the game is what pays the bills. So reality, you have to win some games or it doesn't matter what you're modeling. Absolutely. And how much do you factor in other things like making sure you get the price you want and line shopping and understanding how to price certain numbers in an NFL, for example, if it's if it's minus three at 110 or it's minus three and a half at plus 115. You, you want to know, you know, what each of those actually mean. Are all of those things critically important to your operation or are they things that you rely on and need, but also uh, they aren't primary when it comes to overall impact? Well, well I mean, the, you know, one of, the, one of the key things that kind of caught me off guard when I kind of started getting serious about betting was that factor, you know, I thought what people did is they went out there and they modeled and built, you know, okay, Broncos minus three, 
total 43, right? But that's not what they're doing. The smart, good guys in this business, I always thought, okay, well, the smart guys in this business, they don't really mess with those main markets. You hear it all the time now, you know, you should be betting in smaller markets. You should be betting in these niche markets. You should be doing all these things, right? That's what you're hearing today. That's the, the, the big talk of today. Well, I always assumed that those, those small markets was like table tennis or uh, National Rugby League or something else. <laughs> I, I assumed that it was something other than the NFL, MLB, that stuff. But the reality is these guys are still betting NFL, MLB, but they're betting those alt lines. See, those alt lines is where, is where these, these smart bettors are at right now. They're not taking the Broncos minus three at 110. They're taking the Broncos minus seven at plus 430. Right. So again, that comes back to the market thinks it's minus three at 110. And then there's a, is it a misprice, let's say, or is it a incorrect uh, derivative by the sports book? Are you saying, or are you saying that they have a way to understand that, you know what, the Broncos in this situation, even though there's a typical model that's used, I think that I can exploit it because I understand the game and how it's going to be played and what's happening. And I think that, seven at this number is is the right way to go i i think it's more that those smaller markets if they get hit they can adjust over adjust to just avoid being hit again you know like let's say the say uh, a book a big book has a book that prices their own stuff not a mirror but a book that prices their own stuff has the broncos minus seven at 400 at plus 400 if a guy comes in that they kind of trust and he bangs on that door a little bit they're going to knock that thing down to, you know, they're going to knock it, you know, knock it down to what, 320, 330, whatever it takes to stop this guy. That's just going to keep pounding it over and over. So I think that it's more likely that you can see inefficiencies in those edge markets. And that creates more opportunity for someone to be able to come in and, and win that. Where I think that the minus three, minus 110 line is going to wiggle back and forth a little bit. It's going to have a lot of public influence. I mean, how many guys do you know that are sitting in a bar drinking a beer are going to jump on their computer and they're going to drop a dime on the Broncos minus nine at plus 480? Yeah, none. Yeah, exactly. So anybody that's playing that market, and if they're playing it big enough, they're probably influencing it. And if they're influencing it, maybe they're over-influencing it. Maybe they're not influencing it enough. I mean, how can you have 10 games on the board that are all minus three, minus 110, and three of them are minus 10 plus 400, two of them are minus 10 plus 360, and one of them is minus 10 plus 675. How can that be? <laughs> Something's going on there. Exactly, and that's where, the, that's where I think your skilled and your smart bettors are betting. That's where, the, that's where the, you're seeing these, when they, you know, when you hear the guys talk about it now a lot, Especially on like Twitter, you hear it talk about like, oh, don't bet the major markets. The major markets are too efficient. So when you think of major markets, you're thinking the Broncos, the NFL, right? They're not talking about not betting on the NFL. They're talking about not betting the minus 110 lines. Sure. Yeah, because they're the ones that have the most input from all around the world. Everyone who's, who's betting big enough are going to be entering those markets because of the, the limits. And I guess, you know, as you were going through that example of, of minus 10 plus 400 drop into plus 330. I wanted to just ask around, let's just say that was the theoretical best NFL sports better in the world. Um, and following in those types of people at those types of bets, I see it more commonly now, um, people putting out plays publicly and or 
people saying, you know, this person is on this. I think there was one about Billy Walters, apparently, uh, obviously well known in, in the US, but it, obviously or unlikely to be true. But even if it was, you see people following along those types of bets, which seems like just suicide. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, the, one of the one of the key things that I always talk about is even if you knew what Billy Walters was playing, if you're not betting it when he is, you're still flipping coins because he's he already moved the line by the time you get there. So this reverse line movement, line movement crap that people talk about, it, it, there's no edge there. So before I let you, I want to talk just generally about the the gambling world, the industry, and where it's headed. And I know you're working on a couple of things, and if you're comfortable. Talking about those at this stage of their development, we can. But just for for the everyday gambler out there, obviously we we lightly touched on what it might have been like twenty or thirty years ago, and getting the pencil out and, and having a crack at it that way to to the last sort of decade or so, where there's a, a myriad of information out there. There's plenty of tools. Obviously, Twitter is up to date on certain things when it comes to gambling related information. What do you do? You see you doing something similar throughout the next decade, or do you think it's it's changing or it's evolving or, or if we had this conversation in 15 years, would we laugh at what we're talking about or would we still be able to discuss something in a similar vein? I, I, I think that, the, you know, I think that the one thing that we're going to see a lot and it's coming fast and I don't know what 10 or 15 years will be like, but you're going to see a lot more, you know, like we talked about my, the better sites thing I was working on the, you know, the cards, the different data, the sports data, but when, what that is, is that's trying to keep your market share in-house. Books are losing badly to people going to sites, other sites to get statistics, going to other sites to find out how a team did over the last five games. And when they're going to those other sites, those other sites have affiliate links to other books. And books are not liking the fact that they're losing money and losing betters to these affiliate sites. I think you're going to see a lot more of game previews, um, better information, trends right there in your book, right there on the, you know, you're looking at the book and you're looking at the line and it says Broncos minus Broncos minus six versus Raiders right there. You're going to have a little button that'll show you every single stat that you could possibly ever want on that game right there on your book site. I think that's one of the big things you're going to see soon. And it's going to get, and of course, you know, as it, as it's born, it's going to get way more sophisticated, way better, way, way more talented, you know, it's going to be, that's your, that's the next road. That's what's coming down the road. You're going to have a lot more information about betting right on your book, right on your betting app. It's fascinating because that's what horse racing has been like for the last decade. You know, you go on any, any decent horse, uh, horse gambling site and you can find the form guide of the horse. And maybe that's a I guess a natural inclination of how horse bettors have approached things as opposed to sports gamblers. Maybe sports gamblers are far more inclined to say, no, no, I got this. I know everything about my team or the, or the sport I'm betting on. And I don't need any of that stats and info right there at the sports book. But it is an interesting point you make because it is something that's very, very common in, in other gambling games. Yeah, absolutely. And in sports book, there's, you know, like me and you, we're, we're sitting here talking, okay, let's go bet on the Raiders. Let's go to a book and bet on the Raiders. Okay, we get there, we look at the book, we say, oh, it's Raiders minus six. Oh, well, shit, let's go see what, uh, you know, what the power rankings are for them. So now we got to go to another site. Oh, okay, well, let's go see what they did of the last three games. Okay, now we got to go to another site. And, and, we're doing, and we're doing all this internet visiting of sites 
And it's pretty easy for us to get distracted and maybe not even ever make it back to that book again. Yeah, no, I completely understand. So last question for you before I let you go. Tell me what sites that you might use or rely on. Are there a handful out there that are really important outside of obviously the, the bookmakers sites that have their odds and lines on there, but are there information and tools out there that you use that you rely on heavily? Uh, okay. For scores and stuff like that. I love flash score. Cause you know, you get, it makes all the noises all day. You hear every time someone scores a goal or something. <laughs> I love flash score. That's my favorite thing. I run to it as soon as it makes the goal sound or the score change sound. Um, I, I use sports database as well. You know, I use sports database all the time. And, you know, um, and of, of course I use, you know, um, you know, like I use different odd sites like Don's Best, you know, to see all the different lines from the different books and stuff. But, you know, that's the big problem. You know, that's that's the big problem. I got to go to 25 different sites and I got to have 15 tabs open to get the information I need for a game. And that's what I'm trying to solve with the better site stuff. Like, you know, I kind of gave you a peek at it. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're onto something just given I think if I asked every gambler who's listening to this and you said, you know, list the sites that you use to augment your betting, they're not going to list one or two or three. I would imagine everyone has five, seven, 10, 12 different places they go for certain things. And I think that's where, you know, potentially augmenting all that, uh, allowing someone to have one place, you know, one-stop shop type thing for all the critical betting information that they rely on is, is an interesting one. And I think that that's going to have to be in your book. Yeah, I don't okay. think you're going to be able to go third party for that. I think the book is going to have to integrate that into the into the actual betting app. Well, it would be nice, especially from a mobile experience, to not have to keep jumping between apps or or jumping on Safari on your iPhone to try and find out one little thing you were looking for. If it was all in one place, it it does make sense. Absolutely, Dan Shan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for chatting. It's not something we often discuss around um, just the best ways to approach it in, in this style and this manner. And it's been fun to chat. And uh, one last thing, where can people find you if they want to follow along with what you've got going on? Well, I mean, you, you know, you can find me on Twitter, you know, um, it's at spot on parts and spot on parts is kind of funny because it's like spot on parts. Like I'm not perfect on everything <laughs> kind of play on words, but it's at spot on parts on Twitter. And that's the best place to find me. And then, of course, my, you know, my betting app, you can find me on jgexchange.com as well. Awesome. Appreciate the time, sir. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. It was fun talking to you. Hope we can talk again. Mm-hmm.